History, Rabbi Bleiweiss, Session 71. I'm focusing in this period, obviously, on the Tanaim and the Amoraim. The, uh, they are the center stage of, of history. But meanwhile, in the background, um, with all their shenanigans and the political intrigue, uh, the Roman Empire goes on. We find ourselves somewhere in the middle of the second century, uh, the third century, right? So it's it's the, we're, we're squarely into the period of the Amoraim, the early Amoraim. A period begin that begins that's sometimes referred to as the Roman Anarchy. The dates are roughly 235 to 284, during which time, in about a uh, half a century, almost the same number of years, the same number of Caesar's rule. 50 different Caesars rule, uh, none for more than a year, none of them die of natural causes. Not, um, not good to be, uh, you know, not, not the, the insurance firms don't take out, uh, you know, policies on these people. What happens is that the whole empire starts to implode, currency collapses, taxing is impossible, there's no point in going into agriculture, because you can't make a living anyway, so why bother doing all the hard work? So then, of course, poverty and lawlessness become rampant. As we know, that's the way, that's the way of the world. There's a, there's a Gemara that talks about, uh, during this period, uh, two Amorim passing a vineyard, and they think they see cows and sheep, but it's a mistake. What they really see are the bloated grapes uh, that, are, that are so large because people have abandoned their land that they're, they've been untended. So they're not, they're, they're not manageable anymore, that they're that big. And that's not meant as, that's not meant as a positive thing. Elsewhere, the, uh, the Ushami describes the various levels of corruption and how people should avoid positions of power, uh, reflecting the mission of Pirkei Avos. Uh, Eretz Israel becomes increasingly uh, difficult to live in as if it wasn't already enough to begin with, and so this continues to feed the um, flow to Bava, and the center of gravity is increasingly moving east. In 284, a new Caesar arises. His name is Diocletian. He was originally an ignorant swine merchant, a shepherd, excuse me. Uh, he was from an area in Eretz Israel, actually, from Tiberia, but not, not Jewish. He's the kind of figure, we're talking about the Roman anarchy. And the end of the Roman anarchy in 284, he's somebody who bullies his way through the army up to the aristocracy and eventually becomes Caesar. And Diocletian is credited with two major reforms that change the course of Roman history. Um, the first is economic. He fixes the prices in order to stabilize the economy. Uh, and related, uh, related uh, part of his economic policy was to, he sets the currency rate in order to prevent inflation. Right, so these are technical kinds of things that he did that turned out to be extremely effective because he managed to, at least um, for, for, for a while still, uh, re-establish re, re the, the power of the Roman anarchy. I, I made a connection. There may be nothing to it, but... I, it, it, when I was learning about this, it, it, I made a connection that it was Shmuel in our history who, um, who did something also interestingly. And Shmuel, we know, is a multi, like, like all the rabbis deal with all aspects of life, but certainly this, he's, he's multi-talented. He was, uh, he was a master of, in the monetary sphere in Dina Mamonos, and we have what the Gemara Baba Basra tells us is, Takonas Shmuel hamistaker al-yistaker yosemishtus, we know that the Torah prohibits a person charging above the market rate. That's called onus 
Otis uh, Mamon, we mentioned it the other day, and um, practically that doesn't always come up in in uh, in practical halacha because um, as if if people understand the going right way rate and are willing to pay inflated prices anyway, then it's not an issue of onus mamon. But Shmuel came along and made an extra rabbinic decree. He said a person who's going to profit should not exceed um, profiting a sixth of the uh, of the of the market rate on essential products like wine, oil, and flour. And uh, translated into more economic terms, he limited a twenty percent markup. And um, maybe there's a connection. Maybe uh, we like to think the Jews write history. Right, maybe there's some kind of connection, maybe not. Um, that was one of Diocletian's major reforms. Uh, and again, the empire, it gets back on its feet to some degree. Um, the second major reform was he splits the Roman Empire into two. And um, the idea is to be able to micromanage more effectively. If you have this one unyielding, uh, unwieldy kind of an empire, so it's harder to control, two entities somehow are more manageable and they will each have separate rulers even though everybody understands that Diocletian in fact rules both halves of the empire but he designates it a separate ruler in the west and he takes over in the eastern part of the empire um, which will later be called Byzantium. It's named for the city. The city Byzantium becomes a historically very important central city. It's a Certainly a famous city till today. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the center of uh, historical activities, but um, it's the more attractive part of the Roman Empire in these days, certainly more culturally significant. Um, later on, Byzantium will be renamed Constantinopolis, uh, Constantinople, uh, Constantinopolis after Constantine, a, a, a leader that's coming around very soon. The Roman Empire will, will crack in half. There'll be periods of brief reunification, but ultimately they'll split in half. When we hear, when we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, we're talking about the fall of the Western Roman Empire, indeed, and that's coming around. We'll, we'll, we'll see that in the, in, the, in the coming few hundred years. Um, the Eastern Roman Empire is also part of the empire, but it's renamed Byzantium. And the Byzantine Empire <clears throat> will actually endure all the way until 1453, in which it's finally overthrown by the Turks, by the young Turks, by the Ottoman Empire, meaning the Ottoman regime, and they'll rename the city from Constantinople, they'll start calling it Istanbul. The Jews, for their part, uh, often avoid calling the names of cities by the designated names. Sometimes there are um, associations with the Bodhisattva in the names. So the Jews would call the city Kushta, and it's referred to in our literature, and it'll be a, we'll, we'll hear about this city too, as someplace Jews will live there. It'll serve, it'll serve a role. Diocletian now, the new empire, emperor, uh, chooses to rule from there. The West, now we associate with more of a barbaric culture. Later on, we, we, we think of the Gauls off, off in France who were generally illiterate. The Germans weren't much better. Uh, and the, the um, real forefront of human endeavor and uh, achievement was generally associated in the, in the East, which, I don't know if you're, if you're focused in modern times and the way we think about things, that's kind of inverted from, the way, from our attitudes today. Generally, we associate cultural uh, uh, sophistication and prominence with Western culture and Eastern cultures more backwards. That was not the case in the third century, where we, where we find ourselves, and, and not only the third century, uh, going for about a millennium, 
the, the East is where uh, all, all, all of um, the society really developed, and the West was backwards, with some, with some important exceptions. The West, of course, will retain its capital of Rome, but Byzantium is going to be now, uh, we'll be hearing from. Sura, right, which Rav was there, Rav died already, and now Pumbedisa, and you can look at your maps, there's a couple still on the tables. Sura and Pumbedisa remain the most influential yeshivas. Um, Pumbedisa at this point is just emerging, but it'll become a great yeshiva uh, in the times of the Talmud, and they'll be the places to be more on and off, but more or less throughout the entire period of the Talmud, the Savarayim, the Gaonim, and even, even briefly into the period of the Rishonim. The, despite the fact that there's some distance, you can look on the map and see the distance, the communities remain united. Bavel was very uh, impressive for that. There was really a sense of harmony between the various yeshivas that was not always achieved in other diasporas. Um, one of the ways they did it was, was through an institution that begins already now during the uh, early Amoraim called the Yarche Kala, and no, it's not an NCSY convention. Uh, they, they, contrary to popular thought that the, that the Talmud took it from NCSY, it was the other way around. And um, the Yarche Kala is a biannual learning convention and a real reflection on the immense unity of this project of producing. They knew that they were producing the, the decisive, definitive, written text of Judaism. And that if it wasn't going to be in here, it's not going to be Judaism. That's this project that we're involved with right now that in, the, in this Talmudic era, era, and it was absolutely essential for there to be unity, that there should be a consensus view that this is the Torah. We understand that any no, no great activity on behalf of the Jewish people is going to happen with that unity as we stood by Harsinai, Ishachad, Belevachad, united, uh, so too in, the, in these times. Obviously, there'll be exceptions. I don't mean to paint an overly simplistic picture, but um, really, the, that they're more, those, those um, voices of dissension are more the exception than the rule. Go ahead, Barak. Does biannual mean a tw- uh, twice a year or every other year? Right. Uh, it means twice a year. It can. It could mean either. Right. I, I appreciate the question. Thank you. Twice a year, once during Adar and once during the month of Elul. Now, and just think about this in contrast. I mean, I don't think we need to necessarily compare ourselves to the not to the nations of the world to to, to recognize Klal Yisrael's uh, unique greatness. But in these days, especially when the other nations are flocking to their hippodromes, to their theaters, to the theaters, to the pagan arenas to watch their gladiator sports and other kinds of barbaric activities. So you have, you have to picture the Jews gathering to the Gedolim and the Yarkikala to learn Tyre, to pursue Emes and to, to find it in, in uh, what will eventually be the pages of the Talmud. It's not coincidental that we put Talmud Torah at the front and center of all of our endeavors and our Rabbonim as our, as our leaders, as our, as our role models. Uh, Chazal would do this and they, at this time, um, establish a new tefillah celebrating and, um, and lionizing our great Talmud Chachamim. It's called Yakum Purkan. We say it on Shabbos. Yakum Purkan means Shemaya Lemaranan Verabanan Chaburasa Kazikadishasa that our rabbis, our teachers, this holy assemblage, and what are they doing? They're trying to find truth on behalf of all of Klal Yisrael, so we can lead a decent life in Olam Hazen. So who are among the next generation of these, uh, of these great men? Um, many more names than I can give you, so I can only give you some of the, some of the really pronounced names, and I hope you can 
uh, feel like you get to know them a little bit because they're gonna um, in your in your life in your life careers in learning Torah they should be uh, familiar to you they should be almost like familiar faces. So Rav Huna, who we can give dates his, his dates are approximately two sixteen to two ninety six. Uh, he's considered part of the Masorah on the Masorah charts. He's considered the head of the second generation of Amoraim in Surah. After Shmuel dies, now he assumes the mantle of Babylonian leadership. So he's a younger contemporary to Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, who are near to Israel. Um, so he's in Surah, and now Rav Yehuda will assume the, um, the position of Rosh Hashiva in Pumbedisa, which is now emerging. Um, Rav Yehuda, we've seen a lot of in our Gemara. You can't you see a lot of him in all the Gemara. Often in the guise of Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Rav, or Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. He brought from each of them, brought it widely, um, and, and, and of course his Mechadish, many of his own uh, teachings. Together with Rav Huna, Rav Yehuda, um, in another yeshiva called Mechoza, and then later in Naharda, we have Rav Nachman. But, uh, but I'll talk about Rav Nachman, another, another very uh, a major figure in the Talmud. This is Rav Nachman Bar Yaakov. Not to confuse with Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, who comes later. A little bit about Rav Huna. The Yushalmi in Sanhedrin tells us that he wouldn't take money to become a Dayan, but asked somebody if, while he was serving as a, in the court, if they would take his place in harvesting a date tree. And this became the source of a concept I just talked about in Gemara class called Schar Batala, Meaning when people doing mitzvahs like rebbies or like doctors or like other people doing mitzvahs, you can't pay them. You're not allowed to make money on Torah or on mitzvahs. But you're paying the money that he could, well, in Ravuna's case, that he could have been making, harvesting the date tree. But he can't do that, so you're, you're compensating him for his time, effectively. This is the earliest source for Schar Batala. Uh, the Gemara Megillah tells us, in fact, he was a poor field laborer. Uh, he was so poor that once he came before his Rebbe, before Rav, wearing a belt of straw stalks that he wove together. That's the best he could come up with in, in, putting, in keeping his pants up. He had sold his regular belt to buy wine for Kiddush. Um, I think, th- I, I, there, I, th- I mean, I, that, I have problems in the store. I have my own kashas. That's not one of them. Uh, I'll, I'll restate the kasha. Didn't somebody take pity? Didn't somebody, you know, he's such a prominent figure. Wouldn't somebody notice and give him money and you know, go, buy, go buy yourself a belt, Ravuna? You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, you know, these great figures did not want to take handouts. They, you know, as far as he was concerned, that was a perfectly <laughs> adequate belt. And if you would have suggested otherwise, he would have, he would have disagreed with you. It was, he was fine. Um, I remember reading, uh, there was an article in the secular Israeli press about, um, uh, in, the, in the secular Israeli press, covering the Haredi world, and it was uh, one of the, ex- I, I read it a lot, because I talk about this, I study it as a topic, I want to understand it sociologically, and one of the, I mean, you get tremendously nasty coverage of the religious world, but um, in a refreshingly non-nasty article, he was describing, he, it was a backlash response to his own colleagues who, who were bemoaning the poverty level in the Haredi world and they don't have any, they're starving and they're impoverished. And the, the author of the article said, you know, we arbitrarily draw a line in the, in the social index and call that the poverty level. And then we, um, you know, and, then, and, and, and we say that they're impoverished because they're below that poverty level. But if you go 
not all of them, but you go to some of their, you go to some of their, uh, you know, their homes, they don't identify as impoverished. I mean, I know people like that who definitely are technically below the poverty level, and they're fine. So these things, are, I, I, that's how I would answer your question. Rafuna was fine, thanks very much. So Rafuna was, anyway, the story goes on. The story goes on. Rav gave him a bracha. He didn't give him money, he didn't give him a free handout, but he gave him a bracha that um, Hashem should load him with uh, so much silk that he wouldn't know what to do with all the silk. And indeed, uh, we find that later in his life he became wealthy. The Gmarantainis tells us about Rav Huna, um, so wealthy that he had the following, to my mind, innovative chesed, that not only is a chesed for all of Klai Yisrael, it celebrates the mitzvahs. This is what he did. He would send, with his money, he would send a representative, a shaliach, to the shuk every afternoon, late afternoon on Erev Shabbos, to buy up all the un- unsold produce. Now, if you think about talk about Roe Asenolad, one of our themes these last couple days, what does that do? It means that the merchants are thrilled, because they make a lot of money, because they start figuring out every Arab Shabbos, they can buy as much as they possibly want, and it'll all be sold out. No matter what they do, Rav Hunu will always buy them out. Therefore, they stock up, and they get the best, luscious uh, fruits and vegetables and, 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 and all kinds of supplies, and therefore the, the market is saturated with delect, delectables for Arab Shabbos, that everybody gets uh, low, low price, high quality, owning Shabbos. So the people are able to luxuriate on Shabbos. The merchants are doing well. Shalom al Yisrael. That was Rav Huna's very creative way of benefiting all of the community. <coughs> Wait, and what would he do with Lichlo the... Shabbos Kodesh. What would he do with the... I don't know. That's not commented on. But presumably something productive. But uh, that, was, that, was how, that was somebody who, uh, who really tries to have some forethought in tr- figuring out how we can benefit uh, other people. Um, Rav Huna teaches among many, many teachings. He says, When a man sins, and then he sins again, it becomes permitted to him. It becomes as if it's mutter. Uh, he teaches a principle. This, in my mind, this is one of those things that sticks with me. It's mentioned in Maran Yuma and Kedushin. It's human nature. The first time a person sins... There's a, and he knows it's a sin, so there's a built-in trepidation psychologically, he's traumatized, but then not having gotten struck by lightning and having sinned and having that experience suddenly becomes normal, and then it's not a sin anymore. Oh, I do that all the time. And if somebody were to point out to him, you're sinning, they would say, yeah, I know, but somehow I'm not bothered by that. Right? So that's Rav Huna's principle. It's the Hutrabo idea that uh, somehow people can have this cognitive dissonance where they are fully aware. They're from, they're Yeri Shemayim, and they're Makpid in lots of Torah and mitzvot. They do all kinds of things. But this one area, they sin, and they, they continue to sin, and they can be aware of it, and they can other people point it out to them. And they say, Yeah, I do. And it's normal. No, it's not, Rav Huna teaches. He was followed, after he was the Reish Masifsa in Surah, he'd be followed by his student, Rav Chizda. And uh, we'll learn about Rav Chizda, uh, but they overlap a little bit. In fact, um, they quarreled, and the Gemara Baba Mitzia tells us so intensely that for 40 years they didn't speak, uh, and later reconciled. So we'll learn about Rav Huna and Rav Chizda. It was all the Shem Shemayim. His chaver was Rav Anan, who learned with Eliyahu Navi, and was the author of the Tana de Be Eliyahu, one of the collections of works um, 
of, of, of Chazal's works. So that's Rav Huna. Up in Pumbadisa, Rav Yehuda is the, is the, is the Rosh Hashiva. Um, he was considered Rav's student. He was Shmuel's Talmud Mufat, primary student. Shmuel called him by a nickname. This comes up a lot in the Gemara. Shinana, sharp one. Although he quotes them both. He cites both of them about 400 times across the Bible. Amar Rav Huna, Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shmuel, Amar Rav. Interesting series of events. So Shmuel died, and immediately Nahardar starts to decline as a, as a, as a center of Tyrant. Rav Yehuda moved to Bambadisa, and many others move away. They gravitate to other yeshivas el- elsewhere. And all of it is Chazdei Hashem, because in the year 259, approximately, Nahardar is destroyed. Just in time, all the, uh, many, of the, many of the great Jews got out. We're not going to hear as much about Nahardah again. Not the same kind of prominence that it's had. Nahardah, if you remember, was the first prominent Jewish center in Bavel. It'll regain importance again under Rav Nachman in a few years. Later on, we're going to hear about it under Amemar, one of the late Amorayim. Um, we know one of the earliest Gaonim lives there. His name is Mar Bar, Bar, Mar, Mar uh, Bar Rav Hanina, around the time of Muhammad and the, the Muslim Revolution. We also know that in the 12th century, one of the earliest Jewish travelers by the name of Binyamin Mitudela, he travels across the world, and the Jewish world, particularly Eretz Israel, and he goes far east, and he reports that he uh, visits the ruins of the Shaf Viyosiv uh, Shul in Nahardad, you remember from already from the Galus Bavel. So, Rabbi Yehuda got out of Nahardad just in time to, rebuild, to build up Pumadisa, um, Rav Yehuda has a few famous teachings. Some of them include the following. In Baba Kama, he teaches that um, a righteous man called the Chassid fulfills the words of Nezikin, meaning Baba Kama, Baba Tzia, Baba Basra, that uh, you have to be careful with your monetary dealings. That's a reflection of Yeresh Shemaim. And indeed, that was their primary focus in Pumbedisa. Um, Rav Yehuda has a famous student we'll talk about soon named Rav Zeira. And once Rabbi Zeira followed Rabbi Yehuda into the Beit Akise, to the bathroom, outhouse. And um, he learned there that it was mutter to speak Lashon Kodesh, the holy language, while you're in the outhouse. Because he heard, he heard his Rebbe saying that, and so it's all Torah. We can, we can learn details everywhere, anytime, especially if you're motivated to Lashem Shemayim. Um, it's Rav Yehuda, who oh, I just happened to learn this Gemara not long ago, who sets the Nusach for the bracha we say at Kiddush Lavana once a month. He also sends, he said, uh, a bracha Birkas Ilanos that we say once a year during Nisan. Once, the Gemara in Shabbos tells us, even though uh, anger is completely forbidden, the Gemara tells us that um, he tore his garment in anger, but I think the anger has to be in air quotes, uh, because it was to instill fear in his family, and the Gemara is careful to tell us it was not real. Yeah. It was an affect of anger as a, as a educational strategy, not an actual uh, emotional anger. Being uh, when somebody gives himself license to lose control, and certainly Rabbi Rabbi Yehuda would not have done that. Anger is completely forbidden, except for this kind of anger, which is not anger at all. If you remember, um, when Rabbi Yehuda Nasi died, Rabbi Yehuda had been born in Bavel. He was the link. Remember, we've been tracing this link through the generations. Kadosh Baruch Hu never leaves the world bereft. So the year that Rebbe died, the Gemara in Kedushin tells us Rava is born. Rava, the great, one of the greatest of the Amoraim. Um, Rav Yehuda has some very famous students: Rabbi Bar Nachmani, Rav Yosef, 
and they're going to lead the next generation. The third figure in Bavel, as we round out uh, the picture in Bavel, and I'm telling you about the people, but I'm also trying to give you a sense of the life and what their, what, what their times were like, what they uh, endured, is Rav Nachman Bar Yaakov, who um, his rebbe's were Shmuel and his own father-in-law, Rabba Bar Avua. Am I drowning you with too many names? Or do names are meaningful to you and you're starting to make sense of them? Now, one of the reasons why I gave you these charts, at least you can try to trace who's important. Again, it's my experience personally that it, it, knowing who these figures are, and especially when, they, when you get some personality and association with them, when you actually learn the Gemaras that they, and, and, and the, the Torah that they teach us, it brings everything to life. Rav Nachman has a famous colleague who he has many arguments with named Rav Sheshis, who is blind. And the story goes in, in one Gemara that um, once a heretic was making fun, was mocking Rav Sheshis, <laughs> He said, Rav Sheshis, you can never see the approaching king. It was a great, great uh, noble man was approaching. He said, the king's approaching and you'll never be able to perceive it. So everybody was waiting. And before anybody could notice that the king was actually imminently coming, Rav Sheshis says, here he is. He was the, the blind man was the first person to notice it. And uh, the mean, of course, was shocked and couldn't understand how, what was Rav Sheshis' secret. And he explained... Um, I felt the manifestation of Hashem's presence. What's the, you know, the Nusach of the Bracha, when we see a non-Jewish king or, or some kind of royalty, right? So we say, you carry your Bracha cards around with you everywhere you go? Who gave from his own honor to, the, to, to, to flesh and blood. Now, when you see royalty, I don't know if we see this so much today. In the, in the democratic times, we've kind of broken down the notion of a regal uh, kind of a figure. But once upon a time, you beheld a, a king, a queen, and, and you saw some majesty, you saw some greatness, and that was because the Kaddish Baruch gave them, gave them an aspect of that. And you saw the queen I don't. I think she's become a joke. I don't think she has any. She has no real uh, authority no, or she power. Like, she's a power. figurehead. She has a lot of regal. Like, she uh, has a regal standing, but she's she's not a queen in the sense of uh, today. The the halacha is somebody who has life and death in their hands. She most certainly doesn't. She has the tabloids in her hands, but not much more. So you saw uh, African dictators. Kings. Possibly that you may have an argument there. They're they're kings in the old nasty style. Yeah. So right, African kings today um, very very plausibly. Yeah. So his father-in-law is Rabbi ba, uh, Rabbi Bar Avuha, who was a wealthy man. He actually descends from the house of David. He had escaped the destruction of Naharda and went to nearby Mahoza. Now, Rav Nachman was one of the students in his, in his yeshiva. He was the Reish Masifsa, Rav Baravua. And Rav Nachman was just a young, was but a lad. In fact, the Gemara says he barely had, um, barely had facial hair. And um, Rav Baravua gave him a test. And he was impressed. And he checked his yichas, he checked his midos, and he was completely impressed. And he said, you'll, be, you'll make a fine chasen for my daughter. And a, a match was made. His daughter was one of the great women, turns out, of the entire Talmud. Her name, Yalta. So that's the Gemara Nivamos. He would now, from this point, Rav Nachman is called the Chasna de Benesia. Since Rabbi Barbua had, had his own regal presence, he was like the king, and he was in the king's house. He was like the Chasan, the groom of the house of the, of the, of the, of the Nasi, of the uh, leader of the prince. And indeed, when Rabbi Baravua passed away, Rav Nachman replaces him, becomes the Reish Sidra in Mechoza. Later, he'll go back and rebuild Nahardah. In one episode, 
Limar Kiddushin, Rav Yehuda, back in Pumbedisa, and Rav Nachman have an argument. And it actually, I'm summarizing the story, it goes on for a long time, but Rav Yehuda felt that he was, uh, I mean, reasonably of higher stature than Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman had summoned him to appear in Beistin, and Rav Yehuda refu- refused. Now, I'm not coming to Beistin. And in his refusal, he continually will put down Rav Nachman. In a shame Shemai kind of a way. It's a, it's a fantastic Gemara. You look it up. It's Ayin Amad Aleph. And he won't come to Beistin. And finally, Yalta, Rav Nachman doesn't get the hint. Finally, his wife, Yalta, who's a wise, wise person herself, uh, she says, she advises him, uh, let the case drop before he completely uh, spoil, uh, ruins any prestige that you have left. Yalta's a, a famous figure. She's a Balas Chesed. We find her in the Gemara Gitin organizing um, medical care for great people, including uh, another colleague of this. It's a great period with lots of great names. I'm, not, I'm just mentioning them in passing. Rav Amram Chasida was alive in their times, and he was ailing as an old man, and so she arranged for medical care. Uh, you know who Rav Amram was? The Agarita in the end of Kiddushin, where they, um, they, have to, they have to keep the captive girls temporarily up in his attic. They take the ladder away. It's a ladder that it needs 10 men to lift. It's so heavy. Um, so there's no Yichud issue. It comes up in the Sugi of Yichud. So there's no Yichud um, issue because Rav, Rav Amram is staying downstairs and the captive girls are upstairs. Well, at one point, one of the captive girls is so radiantly beautiful, some of her beauty literally shines uh, a light down from the hole in the ceiling down on the, in the lower floor below. And Rav Amram Chasida, this wise, great old sage, is overwhelmed with the Sahara. that he goes over and the ladder that ten men can't lift up, he lifts up with his little pinky. That's me embellishing the story a little bit. Uh, but he does lift it up, and he's halfway up the ladder when... Um, no, 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 that's a different story. That's one Menachos. No, this one is Rav Amram is halfway up the ladder, and you can almost palpably feel his internal struggle. I have to go up. I can't go up. I have to go up. I can't go up. You know, that mom is the Yitzhahara. And um, the Gemara says, Ifshach, he clenches his legs on the ladder in, in physical struggle between him and himself. And he screams, Nura be Amram, a fire in Amram's house. And everybody in the entire neighborhood is running. You can picture them with their buckets of water to put out the fire in Amram's house. And when they get there, they see this humiliating image in front of their eyes of Amram halfway up the ladder, and one can imagine the students going something like this, having a reaction to the effect of, oy, 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 Rebbe, 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 what do you make us see? This is terrible. And he, he says, no, no. Better that you should see me disgraced in this position in Olam Hazeh than the alternative if I had not done what I did and I had lost myself and, and, and succumbed to Yitzhak, my Yitzhahara, in Olam Haba, it would have been much worse for you to be associated with me. Um, was he lying when he said fire in Amram's house? Not at all. There was a fire. It was a, more of a, um, a, a, a Yitzhahara is associated with being something of a fire. And indeed, Rav Amram then does a great trick. He, uses, he used personal humiliation in order to vanquish his Yitzhahara. He said, he said to his Yitzhahara, you're fire and I'm flesh. And in theory, flesh should beat fire. Rock, scissors, paper, flesh should beat fire. Um, but I'm bigger and better than you. My flesh overwhelmed your fire. And um, he did this trick that I've been trying but never quite worked out. He made the fire appear in front of him as a, a pillar of fire, an amud esh. And the Yitzhahara left him. 
Uh, go look it up in the Gemara there. Anyway, Yalta was the one who organized for his medical care. Yalta's bothered at one point. In the Gemara Chulin, she says, you know, everything that Kaddish Baruch Hu created, he created something that was Usr, and everything that's Usr has something else, a corollary that's permitted. And she said, I know most of, most of the corollaries. I know, for example, blood. Jews are never allowed to consume blood. But as the permitted corollary, we're allowed to have liver, which is rich in blood. We're not allowed to have chalid, the for, forbidden fats of, of, of behema, of, of certain animals. But as a, as a correspondent, we're, we can't have chalid of a chaya, of a wild animal. We can't have the meat of, of, of chazir, of swine, but the, apparently there's a corollary. I, I, I've never tried this myself, but there's a, a creature, a fish, out there called shibuta, uh, who the, apparently the shibuta brains taste just like pork chops or bacon. But she said all those things she knew, but she asked her husband, she said, Rebbe, she asked Rev Nachman, she says, I don't understand what would be the equivalent of basar b'chala. What do we have today that we could have milk and meat? And I gather that those days they didn't have those, all the soya things they do with soya, nice. right, exactly. So um, he answered, he actually, he didn't answer, he answered by doing something. He took a kachal, which is a cow's udder, and he roasted it. In any case, apparently the udder retains the milk taste without actually being basar b'chala, and that's what he does. The, um, the, of course, when you learn these agadatas, there's much more going on than meets the eye. What she's getting at is subject of lots of discussion. Lots of mufarshim weigh in on this, that a Kaddish Baruch Hu gave us a world to enjoy. It wasn't, and this is, uh, let's say, one, one insight you can, you can deduce from the story is that for people who are, um, there, there is, let's say, a parental personality type, who, who um, when kids look at them, they think of no, 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 no. That's all the parents have to say. Everything's a negative, everything is no. And um, the Torah has a certain amount of no's. That's really for our own good. But it should not all be no's. There has to be a lot of yeses. The Kaj Baruch gave us a very rich, vibrant world. We should enjoy it. Anything that's forbidden, don't feel neglected. Don't feel somehow you're deprived. You have, you have something for everything that's pro- uh, prohibited. You really do have lots and lots in this world that is permitted. And um, the Gemara you can look up in Chulin on Kuf Tes Amud Beis. She used to go around, remember she grew up in, in, in a wealthy man's home. She used to go around on Yantif on a special alonki, which was a kind of a carriage where they carried the king around. And they did that, and she didn't do it because she uh, liked the attention or liked to show off her wealth. She knew that the masses would be inspired by, by the regal position. She did this, and actually it's a precedent for later Hasidic Rebbe's who did the same, and they didn't do it for their own self-aggrandizement. They did it as a way of celebrating Torah. She knew she came from a house of Torah, her father, her husband, and that the Jews should give covenant to Torah, and that's what, that was what her intention um, I think the Rebbe of Sadigora, the, the, the Hasidic Rebbe of Sadigora, Sadigora had um, famously uh, he had gold and, and stables of horses. Uh, but was it him? No, I don't think it was the Sadigora Rebbe. This was true of it. was another Rebbe, and I don't want to mistake it, so I'm not going to quote it off the top of my head. One of the Rebbe's wore um, diamond, sho- diamond encased shoes without soles. What's the message? Meaning, in other words, the pomp and circumstance, the fanfare was for the masses to celebrate Naira, but personally he took no pleasure from it. And as a way of reinforcing it to himself, he, he got no comforts from his luxuries. And in one of my all-time favorite Agaritas, we find in the end of the seventh parak of Brachos, a great story. 
Ula, Nechusa, hadn't yet died. Remember Ula traveling back and forth? We talked about it yesterday between Eretz Israel and Babel. So Ula once came to have uh, Suda by Rav Nachman and Yalta. Ula is asked to lead the Birkus Amazon, and he has the Kosh Shabracha. He had, like, the, which is, of course, the Halacha. They have a Kosh Shabracha. Go look up, go look up how, when and how. Uh, the, the, and, and, and he um, drank from the Kosh Shabracha, from the, from the wine at the end of the meal. And Rav Nachman said, um, now that you've done that, very nice, send some of the Kosh Shabracha to the woman of the house. Send to Yalta. And Ula said, no. And he explained, he had a different understanding of the Halacha. He said, it's not appropriate the um, koshel bracha serves as a very powerful mystical, like everything in, in Torah, has a mystical effect, and it's particularly um, limited to the husband and wife. The husband should send his wife the koshel bracha, but not an outsider, because the, there's something about bracha that comes from the koshel bracha, and a wife should be blessed with fertility, with productivity, specifically from her husband and not from an outsider, was his perspective. Well, Yalta overheard the conversation, and well, she, she, um, well, she, she did the logical thing under the circumstances. She went up to the wine attic, and she proceeded to um, break four hundred barrels of wine. So then, downstairs, meanwhile, and I have my sort of dry British uh, image of this in my mind as Rav Nachman and Ula are still sitting at the table, not having moved from their positions, and I picture like you know wine dripping down on the inside of their spectacles as they're sitting at the table, and Rav Nachman then saying to Ula, perhaps now you should send Yalta some, the glass of wine. Um, and, uh, and then the story ends. The deeper idea, and there's a lot there, I'll give you some of the, some of the what the Mepharshim talked about, there was actually a Mahmokos L'Shem Shemayim, whether to send or not send. Yalta is actually making a major point. She said, I understand you have your position, and it's based on halacha, it's based on tradition for a Yodunah. She said, you're in somebody else's home. His practice is to send the koshel bracha. You send the koshel bracha. In the, I remember this idea coming from the Enyakov. She said, something like koshel bracha, which signifies shalom bayis between man and wife, if it's Rav Nachman's practice to have you send it to me, and he tells you to, and you don't, don't you realize you're potentially, you're, you're, you're jeopardizing shalom bayis? And that's far more precious than any halachic position that you could have. And she makes that statement by, by breaking 400 barrels of wine, because 400 in gematria spells ra'ayin, evil eye. And if you look up, it's a whole great sugya. If you look up every place four times, you find 400 in the Tanakh, and each time it's a story about ra'ayin, but that's for another class. In any case, in any case um, this is the great Yalta, she's married to Rav Nachman. Um, it's Rav Nachman and Rav Yitzchak who say their their chavrusa, and they, they exchange many many um, halachic conversations back and forth. One very famous one in the first chapter of Tainis, and at the very end of a very uh, uh, informative, productive uh, learning session where many many practical halachas are taught. So Rav Nachman asks Rav Yitzchak to give him a bracha after as he's about to leave, and Rav Yitzchak's response is. Uh, this is certainly appropriate for today. You're going to like this one, Ilan. He says, Ilan, Ilan, b'ma avarechecha. He says, he says to Rav Nachman. It's about them that the story takes place. How can I bless you, tree, tree? It's, my, it's a parable. He says, she'yehei perosecha mesukim, that your fruit should be sweet. Hare perosecha mesukim, but your fruit, your fruit is already sweet. Rav Nachman, you have, you have, you, your, the fruit of your Torah is, is rich and immense. 
He says, Shehit but that your your the shade of your tree should be should be pleasant, but your the shade of your tree is is, is amply pleasant. He says, Ella let it be your will, let it be Hashem's will. Um all of these saplings that come out of you, your children, your students, should be you uh, should be like you. Um, he blesses him. Rav Nachman, uh, of, his, of his many innovations, he is the one who sets what's called the Shuas Heset, uh, a very important rabbinic oath when um, if you are in a position where you're in, the, you have, let's say you're in a monetary argument with somebody, but you have the upper hand, Chazal administer uh, what's called the Shuas Heset to, um, to testify that you, when you're denying allegations, you just have to cover yourself with this rabbinic oath. And if you make it, you're, you're clear. Rav Nachman was the one who said that. It's Rav Nachman who teaches us a very famous principle in the Gemara Megillah. All Leitzanus is forbidden, except Leitzanus about Avodah You have to break down the iconoclastic, break, literally iconoclasm is to break down icons, idols. And we're meant to break them down because otherwise people might get involved in them. Uh, this is the period that, remember, the Chavarim, the Sassanids, who oppressed the Jews, and they prohibit us again from saying Kriyashma. So Rav Nachman, this time, remember, we have had all kinds of creative ways of, find, of, of saying Kriyashma anyway. It's Rav Nachman who institutes hiding the Shema. This time he does it in, um, every time they say Kedusha in Tefillah, he inserts it in, uh, in, in the Kedusha. Right? We still do that in Musaf. Ever notice why right, we say Shema in Musaf? That was our way of sneaking in Shema. Hard times, and Rav Nachman's life was not purely, uh, you know, Torah and wealth and happiness. Uh, there were non-Jewish gangs who terrorized the countryside, and among the victims, um, they kidnapped two of their daughters, Yalta and Rav Nachman's daughters, and there were tragic results. But they did have Nachas from their great sons. Indeed, Kol Natios, all of the saplings were very much like him. Um, he had students of the, uh, uh, um, including Rav and Abaya. He and Rav, Yehud, and Rav Yehuda die in the same year, so you have almost like a generation goes uh, goes out together. Um, Rav Chizd is still the leader in Surah for the next ten years. Let's get back to Eretz Yisrael. That's 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 a quick survey of what's going on in Bavel during the the early mid. Amoritic period. Let's revisit Eretz Yisrael and see essentially the last of the greatest, most prominent Gedolim in Eretz Yisrael for many, many hundreds of years. With a few exceptions. We'll find a few more back, but as a Torah center, this is virtually the end of Eretz Yisrael as a Torah center. So the, the names to know, the names to emphasize are Rav Ami, Rav Ami who after Rav Lazar died yesterday, Rav Ami replaces him He's the Gadol Ador of the third generation of Amorayim. His Chavrusas of Asi. They're both Kohanim. They're called the Kohani Chashive Da'ara Yisrael, the holy, uh, important priests, Kohanim of the land of Israel. Uh, they, like many Kohanim, remember what the practice of the Kohanim were in these days? Ate Chulin the Tahara. Why did they eat, eat ordinary food in a state of purity? Because the base of Mikdash could be rebuilt tomorrow. Rav Ami teaches us, La'olam yashlim adam parshiosa vimatsibur, shnayim nikra vechad targum. This is the earliest source for completing every week, you know, the salacha. We're supposed to learn um, twice through the parsha plus um, targum, and uh, later on it would be targum and or Rashi, the commentary of Rashi. It's really bad scene in Eretz Israel. The Romans are awful. They tax the Jews 
all of the Jews into uh, poverty. Their kidnapping is, is, is notorious and very common. And Jews are leaving in droves. And Ravami and Ravasi tried to make a case that Eretz Yisrael, despite everything, is lush and wonderful. And they specifically, Mark Subos told tell us that they would sit out in the shade during the summertime uh, and enjoy the sun. And excuse me, in the, in the shade in the summertime, and in the winter they would enjoy the sun. And their kavana was Shelo Yisramu al Yeshivas Eretz Yisrael. People shouldn't have any claims against dwelling in the land of Israel. That even when the times are hard in the land, uh, it's still it's still um, a major mitzvah to do so. Um, the Gemara Kedushin tells the story of Rav Asi once leaving Eretz Yisrael in order to honor his mother, and the Gemara says unnecessarily he shouldn't have left. Didn't this come up just sometime recently? Should you leave Eretz Yisrael to honor your parents? So the Gemara there says unnecessarily he shouldn't have done it. And in fact, as the story goes, before he got to the diaspora where she lived, um, she died. Anyway, so he wasn't even able to fulfill the mitzvah. Um, there might be exceptions to this. It might be case by case. But generally speaking, um, Kibbut Avaim def- uh, gives way to other major mitzvahs. Two more figures for today. And I, I hope I'm not inundating with too many figures. They're among my favorites in life. And, uh, you know, I, I'm giving over as best I can what is the, uh, some of the great figures of history uh, that stay with me and are role models. So um, the next one is Rabbi Zeira. We met briefly, I mentioned it before, following his Rebbe, Rabbi Hood, into the outhouse. So he learned back in Bauville. So why am I, why am I talking about in the context of Eretz Yisrael? Because he makes Aliyah. He represents a link between the two communities. He had learned from Rav Yehuda and Rav Huna. He eventually makes Aliyah to Tiveria, and finally he moves to Kisrin, to Kisaria, and he lives a nice long life. What do we know about Rabbi Zeira? Um, you know a lot. Maybe you don't realize it. It's um, in the Gemara Megillah. Rabba Mizbasim. One time at the Purim Suda, Rabba had, well, a little bit too much to drink. Who knows the story? He had a little bit too much to drink, and uh, I'm sure I did. And um, okay, so he accidentally slaughtered Rebbe Zayra. He did. He did. He did. But it's okay. The next morning, he woke up and he realized, oh no! And, um, and he brought he, him back to life. And then he had a killer headache. He brought him back to life, and then he had a killer headache. That's good. Okay. Um, the next year, the next year, Rabbi invites Rebbe Zayra again to Purim Suda. Hey, want to come for Purim Suda? And uh, Rabbi Zera answers, and again, go look it up there, what's going on with this Sagarata. But uh, Rabbi Zera says, not every year a miracle happens. Thanks. Uh, maybe I'll pass. This is very famous, the following bit. <laughs> Rav Yehuda, who we met, Rav Yehuda Pombadisa, teaches in the Gemara Subos that it's forbidden for Jews to violate the three oaths. Remember the discussion of the three oaths? Still relevant till today. He said, it's us to be Ola Bahoma. We're not allowed to go up and take Eretz Yisrael by force and go up. And, and he understood that literally to the point that a Jew living whose residence was in diaspora was not permitted to make Aliyah. That was how, how he held Alpihalacha. And Rabbi Zeira disagreed. And their argument is, 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 uh, is in the 13th chapter of Ksubos, and a very significant one, that's where um, we once discussed the three oaths, so I'm not going to digress to that now. But the story goes on about, about Rabbi Zera himself, that once he has a dream, this is the Maran Brachos now, he has a dream, and in the dream, he's growing barley in Eretz Yisrael. And he wakes up, and he says, I'm going to make Aliyah. I'm going to move to Eretz Kodesh. That's his motivator. 
I think the best explanation of this I've seen is in a much later book by the uh, Sakachev Rebbe, uh, where he writes one of the most important shuvas about why Jews don't live in Eretz Israel when it is an eternal mitzvah, and he explains Rebbe Zeir's dream. He says, he, and this is a, this is a chiddush of the Avni Mezer, of the Sakachev Rebbe, he says, making Aliyah, living in Eretz Israel is massive mitzvah, we've been talking about it, we'll talk about it more now. He says, but he understands from this Agatha that it's not fully fulfilled unless you're self-sufficient in Eretz Yisrael. If you're not making a living in the land, you're not fully living in the land. Why is that? Only when you daven and your tefillahs are received, Hashem responds by sending rain. Gishme bracha. And when it rains, and rain's not enough, and the rain is able to activate the soil, and the soil uh, permits you to grow crops, and you're able to harvest your crops and, and, and be self-sufficient, only then you know that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is pleased with you and all of your learning, all of your mitzvahs, all of your efforts to make it, to, to, to have a life in Eretz Yisrael. Peep, and, and the Zakat Jebrevi says perhaps that's one reason why people have avoided living in Eretz Yisrael for so many years, uh, because the ability to make a self, self-sufficient living in Eretz Yisrael is very, very difficult, and he's Malamit Tzchus on many of the Gdolim who remain outside of the land. But Rebbe Zera's dream was, if he dreamt and he understood his dreams had cosmic significance, that he could successfully grow barley in the land, then maybe it was time for him to move. And indeed, he, uh, he, he acted on his interpretation, and he moves to Eretz Yisrael. Later, he'll return, but he knew that he ran afoul of his Rebbe, Rebbe Yehuda. Can you argue with your Rebbe? Yes. Yeah, they're both in Morayim. I mean, so even though Rabbi Yehuda was technically his Rebbe, they disagreed, but he was entitled to make Aliyah, but still, um, the Gemara tells us that once he returned to Bavel, he hid from his Rebbe, knowing that, uh, knowing that uh, Rabbi Yehuda was upset with him. Before he left, before he makes Aliyah, backtracking a little bit, he actually fasted for a hundred days. The Gemara Bavel Metzia tells us it was to forget what was called the Shittas of Bavlin. He wanted to forget his diaspora mentality and the way of the Babylonians to think. He wanted to immerse himself in the position, the, the, the style of Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara there is without Machlokas. In Babel they argued a lot, not in Eretz Yisrael. Um, in fact, in Eretz Yisrael it's described, Nochin Zelazek Hashemen. They're comfortable, they're gentle with one another like oil. Elsewhere the Gemara tells us, the Avira de Eretz Yisrael Machkim. The air of Eretz Yisrael makes you smart. I can see it in your eyes right now and many other mystical properties. There is something mystical, magical in this land, whether you're aware of it or not. Uh, oh, one, last, one more source of Ayyikar Rabbah. We learned, Even the idle conversation of the people living in Eretz Yisrael, it's Tyra, the Medrash tells us. When, when Rabbi Zeber reaches the Jordan River and is about to cross into the Holy Land, the Yerushalmi and Shviz tells us that he was so thrilled he crossed in his clothes. He just couldn't wait anymore. Zrizim Makdim in the mitzvah, he ran to do the mitzvah. And as somebody was watching him and started making fun of him. You know, you can't even wait for a raft. And he defended himself. He said, no, don't you realize I merit something now that, that Moshe Rabbeinu, Aaron Cohen, never merited this. They desperately begged to enter the land of Eretz Yisrael and were never permitted. And I, can, I have the opportunity to come and live here and I'm, I'm not going to take advantage of that. Um, Rabbi Zeira famously um, liked to condition himself for the fi- condition himself for the fires of Gehenna. So his practice was to sit in um, the furnace. 
get used to it. And once the furnace, the furnace um, singed his legs. He was called Kotin Harich Shaki. He was he was short, and he was burned, and he was dark complexioned, small, uh, burned, dark one. Kotin Harich Shaki was an abbreviation, but it a nice nickname. It was, you know, it was part of the general humility. And we're going to see Rabbi Zera was, was an immensely humble uh, personage, personality. Um, in the following way, you see this. He was one of those individuals that wanted no glory, no grandeur for himself. And, they, and when he came to Eretz Yisrael, he was such of immense Torah stature that they wanted to give him smicha. And he didn't want to get smicha. He was one of those misha boreach mina kavod. Somebody wants to escape honor, honor, honor will eventually uh, catch up with you. Eventually, they give him smicha. He accepts it. Gemara says he does accept it. Um, he's one of the few Babylonians ever to receive proper smicha, you know, dating back to Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, and when he gets at his ceremony, there was a ceremony of smicha in which, among other things, they sang songs. So the song they wrote, the Gemara Kesubos tells us, the song that they sang about Rabbi Zera was um, usually a song that they sang about a bride, a bride, but they sang about him. They said, neither eye makeup, nor cosmetic, nor hair coloring, they said it. They sang about a, a certain bride. She wears neither, uh, you know, I, no adornments, no no cosmetics, no makeup, but she radiates beauty, and that's Rabbi Zera. He was he was kotin harich shaki, small, dark, burned, but he radiated beauty. His greatness, his tyra, his humility. He teaches us that a person who never sins. Such a person deserves reward only if he resists temptation. It's a deep idea. Meaning, if you're a natural tzaddik, and it just, you just do all the things because you're just following your nature, that's nice, and you'll get a portion of Hava. But you're not, you're not counted among the big tzaddiki who had big yitzaharas and struggled with them. Okay, the last figure I have to tell you about today, and then tomorrow we're going to talk about the early Christians. And not tomorrow. On, on Sunday we'll talk about the Christians. Uh, this is Rabbi Abahu. His dates are approximately 279 to 320. He's among the youngest of Rabbi Yochanan's students. He's counted as, the, as a Talmud Mufak of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan would call him Bini, my son. He emerges after, uh, when Rav Ami and Rav Asi become elderly and are not, are not functioning anymore as the Gedolim in Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Abau is considered the, uh, the new untitled Gadol Ador. Many defer to him. He moves from Tiberia to Caesarea, what's called Knishta de Kisrin, the Shul of Caesarea. Many, many move there too. Temporarily, it'll be a center of Torah in Eretz Yisrael. He's considered, to some degree, the last of the prominent Gedolim in Eretz Yisrael, and that's nicely illustrated on this map. As you see, oh, not this one, right? As you see, the Gedolim of Eretz Yisrael sort of taper off. Um, by the way, we, uh, Rabbi Gamliel, who's the son of Rabbi Yudanasiyah, the great-grandson of Rabbi Yudanasi, is still the descendant of Hillel, of the Nasi, but by this point in history, he no longer even uses the title Nasi. He's in the line, but it's not really official anymore. It's obvious that the position is not functioning, and Rabbi Abahu's the Gadol. When Rabbi Abahu first came to Kesaria, he was with Reish Lakish. And he asked Reish Lakish, he says, why have we come to this land of blasphemers and, um, and, and rebels? And Reish Lakish 
does the logical thing. He um, takes a handful of sand and he pushes it in Rabbi Abahu's mouth. And he says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't approve of those who say nasty things about the nation, of Am Yisrael, his nation. Okay. Well, that's rebuke. Once upon a time, they could take it. Today, we're a little bit more thick-skinned, thin-skinned. Um, it's, Rabbi, it's Rabbi Abahu who's counted among four of the most beautiful people ever, together with Adam and Yaakov Rav Kahana. We just mentioned that the other day. He was also wealthy and prestigious, and he's able to go to bat and help the Jewish people of Noseponim to the nations of the world, to the various Roman rulers, uh, to help help the Jewish people. Um, they respect him. He, he, he's, he's effective there. The Gemara Brachos tells us that he ate Piros Ginosar, special fruit that came from the um, west side of the Kinneret, and his reflection was so it was so radiant, a fly couldn't stand in his brow. It would slip off. Here are some of his significant accomplishments. They're very big. It's he, together with Ravami and Ravasi, who finally, after a long history, we've been going, we've been going in this one for almost a millennium. Maybe a, maybe a, maybe exactly a millennium. There's this ancient people, see, and they've been a constant. <laughs> thorn in our sides through every phase in history. Their name, of course, the Kutim, the Samaritans. And it's under Rabbi Abahu that finally Chazal make the Kutim Akum Gmurim. Rambam says, even worse than non-Jews. It's the only time in history in which an entire nation of converts, first of all, it's unusual that we have nations converting. We have a couple like that. We'll meet the, the, the Khazar people soon enough. But, um, there were other ones like um, there were other people. Yeah, we'll talk about the Ammonites. Certainly, we'll talk about the Ethiopians. But like, there's one king of the Ammonites, and there's a street in Nazareth town. Right, we'll talk about this. The um, so uh, this is the only time you have a, a group of converts whose conversion is retroactively nullified, no longer Jewish. Because the, the conversion, that's why they were called Geri Arayos, they were converted because of fear of the lions. They never really feared Hashem and they never fully practiced the Torah. The whole thing was a ruse. And um, they're now officially no longer Jewish. Um, today, if you go and you, and, and I do bring groups there and I think it's a point of interest and there's a lot to tell, to, uh, to tell in the story, um, they claim actually, their story is they deny that they're the Kutim. They're insulted if you call them that. They, they call themselves the real Jews. And they say, we also descend from Jews, but they're, they're the real thing. And they like to justify themselves because they say that they're the only group of people who've been continuously in Eretz Israel throughout history. Which isn't quite true because even if they claim to be Jews, well, the Jews have been here since Yeshua bin Nun. There was one time that we had an absence, which of course was during Golos Bayashem, Bayash Rishon. When we went down to Babel, I remember the, the assassination of Gedalia represents the, the Jews leave Eretz Yisrael for that short period. And then we come back. But they can claim that they've never left, at least, you know, since, since the time. Of course, our version of the story is that they were brought in from Eretz Kuta by Sancheriv after he took the ten tribes from the north, he replaced them with the Kutim. Um, they claim anyway that, that you know, that, that's proof that Hashem loves them and not us. To which... Okay, I don't know if it's worth getting into a debate over, but um, one point that some people make in response is, okay, but all these thousands of years, hundreds of years, the land has been desolate. And only when the Jewish nation returned in the modern era and actually made the land uh, 
bloom with fruit trees once again for the first time in, in again in millennia. Um, you know that seems to be the only time that, that uh, things are actually working out in the land. That's that's the counterclaim, but I don't know if it's a, a worthwhile argument to have. It's during the time of Rabbi, Rabbi Abahu that they were unsure whether the shof, what the shofar sounded like. You want to talk about the kuching for a second? Yeah. Hey, go ahead. Why won't the kuching be fair? Um, well, they were here, and remember they they were obsequious. They always made they always made uh, well. The Romans, the Romans let the Jews be here too. The Kutim were here too. Um, they were here during the first temple destruction because they were not part of the Jewish people. So the Babylonians left them alone. And then with the Rome, they... The also left them alone. I mean, they were massacred. They were, uh, arguably in history, they probably numbered in the hundreds of thousands. Today, as I said, today, as I said, they numbered 739 of them, but as I say, I haven't read the obituary pages this, this morning, so I can't say that that number is still accurate. And there's two colonies. The two major communities of them, the, the large one is on Madrizim, north of here, in the, above Shechem, and the other one is a more secular assimilated group in Cholon, a little neighborhood in Cholon, uh, south of Tel Aviv. It, they weren't sure what the shofar sounded like, whether it sounded like a gnuchi or a yalala. Gnuch, uh, gnuchi is a moan. Uh, yalala is a high-pitched sound that, that Sisra's mother made when she wept for her son. I just want to forget what the shofar sounded like if it's blown once a year. Um, they weren't sure if they were... If it's, it's a telephone operator game. They're not sure if last year was enough like the year before or if it had gradually evolved away from correct tradition. That was their concern. And remember, the times are they're, they're declining. So there's more doubts in the air, and nobody's alive who can vouch for it. And they don't have cassette record, they don't have you know uh, MP3 recordings to, to vouch for the, the right sound. So it's Rabbi Abahu, under him, he sets the halacha. Uh, so we get this in, in Rosh Hashanah. Um, they, he's misakin tashras, where they from now um, blast tkia shvarim trua tkia. These shofar blasts that we have till today as a way of covering all the bases. At least this way we hear one of those is the authentic sound. He's the one who proves definitively not that there was, not that they had been holding like this, but he offers the definitive proof, proof that when the Pasuk says pre eats Hadar, that it means which fruits, which fruit is the pre eats Hadar, of course? Esrog. That's from Rabbi Abahu. He would sit darshaning a Gadata, and his colleague Rabbi Chir Bar Abba darshaned Shmaisa, Halacha. I refer you to another great story of Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, also after Nura Bey Amram, in the same Gemara of Agadata in Kedushin, there's another great one of Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, but not, that's not my story right now. So as, as um, Rabbi Abahu sits darshaning Agadata, and Rabbi Chia is darshaning Halacha, more people are going to Rabbi Abahu. And afterwards, Rabbi Abahu consoles his friend. He says, it's not a popularity contest. He says, I'll give you the following mashal. Here's a parable. It's um, who you gonna who, who do you expect to have the lar- the the larger clientele the jewelry the jewelry seller or the uh, popular housewares seller I'm popular housewares everybody's gonna enjoy a good story of a gadata but you're telling halacha you're fine jewels so it's not it's not about popularity he tells his friend um, Rabbi Bawa teaches us la'olam al yatil adam ema beso a person should never um, terrorize or intimidate his household. Always manage a house, always be the balabais with a gentle touch, uh, loving and all, uh, loving the whole way. He teaches b'makum shabali tshuva omdim, tzadikim gmurim enam omdim. In a place where the bali tshuva stand, even the greatest righteous people don't stand. The person who's worked in himself, and we overuse the term bali tshuva nowadays, not everybody who 
becomes religious necessarily is a Baal Tshuva in the pure sense, but when, when a genuine Baal Tshuva has overcome a, a, a favor of bad Midos, where they stand, um, even the greatest tzaddikim don't stand there, famous Gemara and Brachos. There was a heretic by the name of Sasson, who used to make fun of uh, Chazal and the Torah, and once he approached Rabbi Baal and he said, you know, when we get to Olam Haba, your people are going to have to serve me, and I'm going to prove it to you. They're all going to draw water for me, the Pasuk says, Ushavtim Mayim Besasson, Pasuk in Yeshaya, and uh, that means they're going to draw water for Sasson. I'm Sasson, so you guys are going to be serving me. So Rabbi Yabalu said, ah, You know, you have a point. Rabbi Yabalu had a very sharp wit. He said, You have, you'd, you'd have a good point, Sasson, if the Tanakh had said, Ushavtim Mayim Le Sasson, for Sasson, but as it is, Ushavtim Mayim Be Sasson, we're going to draw water in Sasson, means. Um, that what we're going to do in Olam Haba is um, hide you, take the skin off your back and use it to fill our jugs that we'll be sipping our drinks from in Olam Haba. Thank you very much. When he died, his, his loss was so tragic that the Gemara in Bab Moed Katan tells us that even the statues, because Caesarea was a famous pagan capital of the Roman, uh, Roman era to Israel, even the statues of Caesarea shed tears. When Rabbi Baal died, um, and as we said, he's... You know, with, with his death, there'll be several Chachamim who persist. They'll be back in Tiberia, but never again, not, not until the modern era, era will we have the same prominence back in Eretz Yisrael. Have a fantastic Shabbos.